Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Doing the Thing podcast. I am joined, as almost always, by my buddy Jason and co-host. Jason, time for a buddy check, man. How you doing? And I am doing great. You know, um, missed you last week. Um, my wife came in after eight months being deployed to the UAE in Abu Dhabi. Um, eight months. So she came back last Thursday. And we were reconnecting. We've had the last week together. I've uh, took a little bit of vacation time. We're just here, you know, making making sure the house is ready to be sold, getting ready for a move, um, and just reconnecting. It's been really, it's been very restful. It's been you know, very nice to have my partner back and you know helping me with everything else. So, so it's been how pretty cool, good. How cool is that? You seem much more relaxed and balanced, my friend. <laughs> Well, there's, there's a reason for that, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you get pent up when you're all by yourself for eight months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, indeed, man. I'm so happy for you guys. Yeah. Very cool. So you take, you took a week off. You probably did a little traveling, maybe, I don't know. What'd you do? Well, we kept it local, kept it in the New England area and went out to, well, we did go to New Hampshire because you can actually do things in New Hampshire. Boston's still pretty much locked down for most businesses. You can eat outside, but it's mm. 90 degrees, so I'd rather go to a restaurant. Movie theater is open next week in, in New Hampshire, so we've just been kind of keeping it north northbound for the most part. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, cool. Happy to hear. Well, I'm not exactly, or at least I should say I wasn't in that same happy, content, relaxed space as you. In fact... You know, I'll share this story because it got me to thinking about something that I think is important for us to talk about today. Um, yeah, every morning I get up, I have a routine, right? I get up at 7 a.m., brew my coffee. I'm ex-military, so coffee matters. And every morning, right, I go into the fridge, I go for the, the milk for my coffee, and it's always stuffed somewhere in the back of the shelf. And I've all got to dig out my coffee, my milk for my coffee. And sometimes it actually pisses me off, you know, full disclosure. I'm like, couldn't everybody be a little more thoughtful and put, you know, right? Uh, this, so this morning I get up at seven and I, I've had a great but a long week. I'm tired. I need my coffee. I brew an extra strong um, uh, espresso brew. My, my milk sit the back of the fridge again. And, then, and now this time, this morning, it, it, it really pisses me off. So much so that I pour my milk, I turn around and smack my toe right into a kitchen counter. So now oh. I got the milk thing and I got the, the stub toe thing and get into my office and I'm like, oh, what kind of day is today going to be, right? Yeah. You know how you yeah. get that? Already starting off on the wrong toe, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And don't you just kind of naturally assume that things have gone crappy so far. The first five minutes really suck. So that might be the indication of how the day is going to go today. Right. Sometimes we, 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 we kind of go into that mindset. Absolutely. You know, and it, that's where you get that snowball effect. It just fouls, you know, more well, and more you, issues than your, your phone calls go bad. Your meetings go wrong. Yeah. It, and it can, right. It can, unless we're uh, aware of that potential. And so it got me to thinking about a topic that I think is important right now. And that's the topic around uh, some psychological princ uh, principles, attribution, 
learned helplessness and uh, the field of positive psychology. And, you know, especially again, you know, a stub toe and milk in the back of the fridge is a pretty minor set of circumstances given what's going on in the world. And I know that, and that's, this is not meant to take anything away from the real tough situations folks are facing. But what it does point to is that tendency we may have to focus in on those things. So we're going to explore in some detail um, these principles. And uh, you know, I became interested in the field of positive psychology and also uh, Martin Seligman's work, which we'll touch on a little bit. Um, but it all began with my interest in negativity bias is what the principle is called. And so let's try to give this some real world context, Jason. You work with, with the exception of last week, of course, um, a lot of people with very diverse backgrounds and very different situations. And in those first meetings with those folks where they're exploring a career change, oftentimes they're sharing with you their circumstances. And what kinds of things do you hear? Man, a wide range of things, you know. A lot of it is fear-based too. A lot of it's, you know, Fear, frustration, um, anger, lots of emotions in some of these calls. Um, you know, I have groups of, of guys and gals that are, I should say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, because they're, they're, they're in their 50s. They're in their 50s and their 60s. And, you know, they're, they're, they're at a job, maybe 15, 20 years. They're trying to make a career out of it, wanting to retire, doing a, you know, wait that was the original American dream, you know, what you'd probably see, you know, with our own parents, you know, you know, stick with the company, retire out of it and they're taken care of, but that company uh, didn't take care of them. And now they're looking for jobs. They can't get a job because they're older. They, they have probably higher salaries, had higher salaries than what the what other places are willing to offer for some of their experience. So um, it's the ageism, you know, so they have ageism. Uh, there are others that are c coming out of the military after 20, 30 years worried that their skills will not transfer over to the civilian sector and, and maybe just transitioning to working uh, with civilian employers. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a huge thing. We're coming from a military environment for your entire adult life and then, you know, moving into, you know, that this huge unknown. So, so it's a lot of, yeah, a lot of uncertainty in those calls. Mm. Yeah, sorry, I was taking a big healthy sip of my coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so here's the thing. Um, it's always good to have an objective resource that you can shine a light on those 2 a.m. issues with, right? Yeah. Those things that wake you up in the middle of the night. Um, and the first thing that I want to recognize, and, you know, this podcast, really what we're going to talk about today, I hope... Uh, is centered to, and I hope will reach those people who are on those, in those situations, those people who have been displaced or are fearful they're going to be displaced, or those that have concerns about future security and otherwise. Because number one, what you need to know is that it is a natural human condition um, to focus on those things, and sometimes to the exclusion of the possibilities that can lie beyond them. Um, and it's called negativity bias. Uh, the human tendency not only to register, but actually to dwell on negative stimulus. Um, we tend to, and this is based on studies, we tend to remember 
traumatic experiences more than positive ones. We tend to recall the insults that people have thrown at us as opposed to the compliments. We tend to react more strongly to negative things than necessarily positive. We tend to think about and respond to negativity and the negative consequences of an action, the risks, as opposed to the possible gains in a situation. Now, research has shown across a wide array of uh, psychological events um, that this is in fact the survival instinct, right? Um, think about, uh, where do you think this comes from? I don't know, honestly. I, I you know, those negative reactions, those reactions that you have to, to negative things, I guess um, it's an avoidance in, in some way. I mean, you, you want to have that react, maybe people have those reactions because maybe they want to avoid ever having somebody say something negative about them again. I, am I on the right track? You're absolutely on the right track. And why this is important to talk about, and I'm going to get into the, the mechanics of this in just a moment, but again, getting back to those people that you're, you're talking to, and certainly I am as well, um, there's a part of them that has all this fear and danger running through their mind. And then there's probably a second part of them that's saying, hey, what's wrong with you? You, you know, am I, what's wrong with me? Am I depressed? Am I, you know, and, and all these things. And so I wanted to uh, highlight the fact that, in fact, this is how we're wired. And once you understand and accept that, you don't perhaps put as much fault on yourself as you do begin to understand how to better manage your own mind against those things that are put in place like this. And so let's trace this back to its irreducible minimum. We're on the savannas. We're running around in loincloth. We got whatever arrows or you know whatever weapons we have in our hand at the time and what are we doing we're trying to survive right so realizing that there's a primitive part of the brain and then there's a more evolved part of the brain thinking about that primitive part of the brain which drives most of these types of behaviors it's very much wired towards avoidance of danger it's wired towards survival the more you could think about what the risk was the more likely you were to live another day on the savanna and hunt and graze and do all the other things that family did back then, right? Um, right. So it is a hardwired, ingrained survival um, bias that we have. It's an evolutionary response we have. You and I probably wouldn't be here today if our ancestors way back when didn't operate more out of fear than they did out of potential gain, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Step Absolutely. into the, uh, I don't know if woolly mammoths had caves. I think tigers did back then, you know, get brave and step into a tiger's lair because you decide you're going to kill it. And you know, then you and I yeah, are where it's hide. Yeah. For the other tribes. Uh, the other interesting thing, because it is a hardwired, old brain, quote unquote, um, instinct, is that the um, psychologists have studied uh, the actual uh, responses in the brain to positive, neutral, and negative stimulus. And there is a significantly greater electro and chemical response that occurs to negativity 
than does positively. So I think knowing this, it becomes very easy to understand why these dangers and these negative concerns get locked in our mind when, when it's so easy to continue to focus on them because frankly, that's what we're wired to do. So fear does drive us. The, the avoidance of danger and risk does drive us. And to a significant way, it drives us. In fact, um, psychologists have done numerous studies and surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, what they found is that uh, when people are, you know, tapped into EEG machines to read their electrochemical or their electrical changes within the brain, um, they react significantly more to negative stimulus than neutral or positive. Hmm. Um, so I think the reason, first of all, that, that this is important to know is for all of you who are listening, who may have those doubts or questions running through your mind, it's important to know, number one, it's okay. That's how we're wired, it's right? Normal. Yeah, it's normal. And number two is those thoughts are powerful things. And unless you put something in the way and in front of them, they do have the possibility of overtaking all of your thinking because evolutionarily, that's what we're wired to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, Jason, you and I were talking a, a few different times about experiences you've had in the battlefield working with entrepreneurs and that experience of changing just one thing and the incremental effect it had on many things to follow. And maybe you have a, a thought or a story to share on that. Yeah. You know, maybe, um, maybe not necessarily a combat one, but um, you know, when, when we're talking about little changes, I mean, I can relate it to a lot of different things, you know, patrolling. If you're patrolling through, you know, a dangerous zone with a squad of soldiers, you know, one, one habit that we get into is looking back every two steps. You know, that, that actually changes the entire dynamic of your patrol because you, how do you know that person's behind you? You know, maybe we're spaced out, you know, five meters per person. Every couple of steps, you kind of want to look back and make sure that person, A, doesn't get ambushed, two, doesn't fall or hurt himself, yeah. uh, or three, just to make sure that, you know, he's safe, you know, he's just, he's still there behind you. So that's, that's one thing that we've always taught our soldiers you know, when I was an infantryman, you know, when you're on patrol, you know, one, you're, you're actually looking at your sector, your assigned sectors where you're looking for security, you know, and that's just to prevent, you know, somebody sneaking up on you, you're looking for bombs, you're looking for, you know, you know, people in the populace that might be, you know, spying on you or recording our movements or anything like that. These are the, you know, the, the older Iraq days. We don't do a lot of that stuff. Um, we do a lot of that stuff in Afghanistan these days, but this, these were that the Iraq days. So, so there's a lot more people, a lot more things going on around you. Imagine doing something like that in Baghdad, right? So you want to make sure that somebody's behind you and, you know, there's lots of loud noises, there's vehicles, you know, going, there's, music there's loud yelling so a lot of stimulus so you want to be able to you know look every couple of steps you know and that's something that you know um even in a train up of coming out to iraq we'd be at the national training center in in california you know we'll just have guys just walk in and, and make sure that they're looking behind them even if they're going to get food or something like that it's a small little thing but it adds tons to your security 
huge amount of security. Everybody's aware and understands where their battle buddy is at. You're talking um, about situational awareness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, and, and I think that that's an excellent point because what we're talking about is the imminent location-based, physicality-based kinds of threats, right? And these become things we can be trained to, you know, be attentive to, right? Um, because muscle memory at a point. Muscle memory at a point, right. Um, different than those things that go in, go on within our own mind that perhaps we aren't so trained to deal with. And just like you were taught to take those steps and look back and check on your buddy and, you know, survey the situation around you, I think we have to do that internally, right? And one of the ways that starts is um, by understanding the pitfalls and uh, as well embracing the principles. So one of the interesting things in Martin Seligman's work, uh, back in 1965, he did some experimentation on animals. And then this experimentation ended up uh, evolving into a full field of positive psychology that he developed with some others, which is incredible. And we could talk for hours about all of that. But one of the first things that he centered in on was the uh, principle of learned help helplessness. It's a hard word for me to say, maybe too much caffeine. Learned helplessness. That's, that's weird. Learned helplessness. Mm. Yeah, so the way the experiment went is he placed a dog into a cage, and the cage had two sides, and in between those two sides was a wall. And the dog would be on one side of that wall, and he would introduce a negative stimulus. And I, you know, I'm not going to get into the details about what that was, but um, a negative stimulus. And when he had done so enough times that the dog was aware of that stimulus, he then brought the wall down. Now, on the other side of that wall, you know, we know on this side of the wall there's a negative stimulus. We don't know what's on the other side of that wall. Yeah, right. What do you think the dog did when given the opportunity? Probably went for the other side. You know, it did doesn't not, work. did not go for the other side. Did not go for the other side. Did really? not go for the other side. Yeah. You, intuitively, you would think that that, that uh, survival instinct would kick in. And, but what in fact happened is the dog had learned that this cage was a punitive experience. And because of that experience, it stopped trying. Even when the wall was fully removed, that dog would not move from that space, almost as if it believed that that was what it was deserving of, or that was now its circumstances. And he expanded that thinking through a number of studies with people. And what he found with people as well was that people can also get into that mindset of learned helplessness. Really see that. Yeah. Yeah. Because perhaps they have thought about something or heard about something that didn't work out, perhaps they tried once and it didn't work out, they begin to think that that's just the way it will always be and therefore surrender to the eventualities of non-success in whatever that thing may be. So the principle of learned helplessness becomes very important as a self-inventory point, right? Yeah. When we're facing these crossroads, 
what are we saying to ourselves internally? And are we falling within that cage? Yeah, it, it seems like that person, you know, what if, what if you're a person that was at a job that you absolutely hated it? You've tried a side business before, or you know somebody has tried a side business, or you had a parent or, or relative that had a business and it went poorly. And like, so you're stuck at this job, like, this is my security blanket. You know, I'm not getting out of this. I've seen, I've seen the other side. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what, what also happens is we talk about the treadmill often in this podcast, but because of this learned helplessness, we can sometimes tell ourselves that in order to do whatever it is we're doing, we have to accept certain sacrifices. You know, we have to hate our, our whatever we're doing. We have to be limited in terms of our income potential. We have to accept that we're not going to like our boss or whatever that may be mm -hmm. because that's been our life experience. And I think one of the many things that become valuable about, I know the conversations you have, um, is just the opening up of possibilities. The right. exploration of something beyond your current experience can change everything. And um, that's a principle in psychology and in Seligman's work called the broaden and build approach, um, which was interesting, Jason. They did some studies on veterans with PS PTSD returning from war. And, you know, first of all, full respect to the work that they did. And secondly, what they found is that, and this is interesting, by introducing into these veterans world a small piece of positivity and then measuring the effect and response for up to the next 15 minutes, the veterans experienced increased cognition, increased perceptions, and better socialization during that little five to 15 minute period of time. And so if you imagine, right, and this goes back to those people that we're talking about facing those dangers and risks. And those of you, if you're listening, if that's you, listen carefully to this next thing. By exposing that little piece of positivity and during that window of time, taking advantage of it to expose the next one, hmm. exponentially things can change and did so in the, in the PTSD patients. It's like hunting the good stuff. Hunting, hunting for the good stuff. Yeah. Now, yeah. And so we've talked about the fact that we're not wired to do that. In fact, sometimes it's intellectually cool to be critical, negative, suspicious, conspiratorial, especially in these unique times we're in. <laughs> Very easy to be. <laughs> Very easy. Um, but there's a danger to that draw. It becomes addictive to our mind. Our mind is wired to think that way. Uh, you know, evolutionarily speaking it's wired to think that way and as you start to buy into those things they have a dark sucking effect of their own into this black hole of negativity and when you're aware of that you tend to be resistant towards it one and two you tend to want to learn about the ways to pull yourself from that knowing that it's going to be a daily battle knowing that between 160,000 to 500,000 individual thoughts occur in the mind every single day. And if we're not uh, generaling those thoughts, we know which direction they're going to go. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to spiral down. So how, 
how do we become self-aware? You know, I know depression is a thing you are aware and it's still something that you can't do alone. You know, you need, you need therapy. Some, in some cases medication, but you know, if you're, if you're somebody that, you know, you're relatively healthy individual, um, but you know, you're, you have these negative thoughts. How do we, how, how do you get somebody out of their funk to address those? Um, well, that's an interesting question, and we could probably have a whole session about that. Um, <clears throat> some of the things in the solo session last week that I touched on, I think, really matter as well. And here's the thing. So before I say this, I talked about the, uh, the sexiness of intellectual, um, intellectual negativity. There is a draw. There is an intelligence factor given to those people who are disbelievers. Uh, for whatever reason, but it, it's a true thing, right? So that's true. Yeah. I say that because what I'm about to say next for those people who are wired that way would say, oh, that's simple and stupid and that would never work. And yeah, blah, 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 positivity, self-talk. And yeah, go out on your porch and yell a mantra of, I am the best. I am the best. I love myself. And then all of a sudden your life's going to change. First of all, we know that's all bullshit. Um, it is hard work to spin your mind around and sometimes it takes outside resources, yeah. but it does really and truly begin with very simple practices, training yourself to focus in a positive direction. And that starts with shining a light on the dangers you face. It then goes into recognizing the opportunities presented within whatever your situation is. And then uh, leveraging and inventorying your strengths is a beautiful place to start. Absolutely is. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that um, there were some studies done on uh, it was so back up a step. Do you do uh, new year's resolutions? Never, never. <laughs> <laughs> they don't stick. Why not? Why not turn it into, you know, why not? Why not do that monthly daily? You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, reinforce it and, and so on. Why wait till the end of a year or the beginning of the year to do it? You know, you're absolutely right. Um, and the reason New Year's resolutions don't work is because we turn the page from December 31st to January 1st, and then mystically the whole world's going to change because the sun came up the next day, right? And that is stupid. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing. And, you know, you know, people say, screw you, 2020, worst year ever. What does a year have to do with anything, anything, you know? And what is a year after all but a collection of days? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, some studies were done about, uh, well, it started with New Year's resolutions. But really, if you think about it, New Year's resolutions are once a year goals that people create. No different than monthly goals or weekly goals, but some people just don't do it until that calendar flips and then now it's 2021, which as we've touched on is stupid. Um, <laughs> but what the studies found is that um, less than 30% of New Year's resolutions were ever carried through and followed through after about two months. Um, I believe it. By putting those goals in writing, those odds increased to 53%, as long as you looked at them every day. Hmm. By putting those goals in writing, looking at them every day, and sharing them with a friend who is then to keep you accountable, oh. that goal attainment went up to 76%. 
Interesting. So, so you're saying that we actually need people to improve ourselves. We can't actually do it alone. I, I would make an argument towards that. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's, you know, there's only so high we can go on our own. We still need to have relationships and we still need to have people there to keep us accountable, you know, for the things that, that we want to have accomplished. Like I was a smoker. My for the first ten years I was in the military, I was a smoker. Really? Yeah, eighteen to about twenty-eight. And a fitness buff <laughs> at the same time. So you can imagine what that did to, you know, my psyche. And every year I would um, you know, New Year's resolution resolution, like a lot of people, would be to quit smoking. You know, what what am I doing by February time? I'm smoking. You know? And you know, it wasn't until I actually went to uh uh, tobacco cessation where I was partnered with somebody that also wanted to quit smoking. That's when I actually fit quit for good. You know, it was actually when I was partnered up with somebody because we were keeping each other accountable, you know, and, and we both knew each other's goal. The ultimate goal is to, to quit first for three days, then three weeks, then three months, then three years. I think by the time you're done smoking after three years, you're done smoking. You're done smoking. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, love that story. So you asked, you know, how do we get ourselves out of the, you know, the focus on the danger and the risks? And certainly that's one way, right? You lay out your danger, strengths, and opportunities, and you structure goals for yourself. They should be realistic, right? I, I'm never going to be an astronaut um, for a lot of different reasons, especially my age, right? This is not going to happen. So I could write a goal of being an astronaut and then I just have that written goal, <laughs> right? Um, realistic, attainable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but here's the other thing that we have to realize again, and circling all the way back to the evolutionary wiring, right? when we understand and accept that we are wired to focus on dangers and risk, that negativity has a much more dramatic effect on our brain than positivity does. Um, we then realize that there are going to be times when we fall back, regardless of how much positive self-talk, regardless of how our goals look and how accountable we're held to them. We're going to take steps back. That's just human nature. That's how, what we're wired to do. And it reminds me of, um, all these people that I know, New Year's resolution or otherwise, that go on diets and they're like remarkably strict until they have one tiny sliver of a piece of cheesecake. And then it's somewhere in their head, they go, oh, that's it. I just blew my diet. And they just go crazy, right? Yep. I'll start again on Monday. That's, that's always what people do. I'll start again. You know, why not just take the guilt and just reset? Right away, have the cheesecake. Okay, I screwed up. Back on track today. Back yeah. on track this evening. Have the cheesecake. Really taste how it feels in your mouth. Feel it sliding down your throat. See it in your stomach. Enjoy every single moment of that. And then the next time you want one, when you go back and you get strict again, just remember the memory of the cheesecake instead, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, but this tendency that okay, I blew it, so I'm done, right? I tried positive thinking, I tried goal setting, I tried, and I'm just not wired to do that. I'm too worried about what's gonna happen tomorrow. Of course you are, because you should be. Get back yeah. on the train. Yeah, I mean, if, 
you know, if um, Steve Jobs was, you know, you know, if he quit after the first failure, you, we wouldn't be talking right now because I know you're on a on the Mac. You know, <laughs> I mean, things would be you know so different today. Um, and, and you can say that a lot about about a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of inventions and a lot of things. I mean, failure is just a normal occurrence, you know. But we learn from it, and it makes us stronger, makes us better. You know, sometimes, sometimes you know it's good to fail. You know, even in the beginning of our businesses, we probably both failed numerous times. But you know what? We're not going to make that mistake again. (laughs) There is an argument to be made for taking the risk and failing versus never having tried, isn't there? Yes, there is. You got to take a leap at some point. Um, And that applies to anything. It applies to starting starting a workout plan, starting a business, starting a new job. You know, going outside of your career field to do something different, you know, you know, it's, it's never going to happen unless you take the chance, unless you do it. And even sometimes if you just open up your mind to a new way of thinking, right, if you stop or suspend momentarily those hardwired thoughts and feelings that we all have and instead switch gears towards possibilities in that small 15-minute broaden and build segment, what can be done from there? What new things will you see that you couldn't have seen because the shroud of negativity was in front of you, right? And again, not diminishing any of the challenges anybody listening is facing. They're real. They're serious. And they should give us concern, but they shouldn't paralyze us. What they should instead do is cause us to take action. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, why not? Why not take that chance? You know, what, what's stopping you? You know, you know, you can, you can analyze it to death and all those, all those bad things that you can, that can happen. You know, if you focus on the bad, you're always going to get it. But what, happened, what, what about the good stuff? You know, go back to hunting the good stuff. Think about that. You know, does that outweigh the bad? Probably. Probably not. I don't know. That's <laughs> what you're thinking about. <laughs> there's, a, there's a theory in project management, which is where I got my master's, you know, uh, master of project management. Uh, there's a theory called the hiding hand theory and the hiding hand theory is what some project managers use when they're presenting projects to a stakeholder. And what they do is they don't actually say how, how much cost will be involved in that project. So they, they do wide brush strokes because almost every project in corporate or even, you know, look at, if you look at the, um, the big, uh, bridgeways that are that come into Boston. That was a project that went way over budget, way over scope, way over cost, but it was a successful project, right? Because you can incorporate the height and hand theory. What they didn't do was think about, you know, the, the whole. I'm, I'm doing a really bad job of explaining this because I just actually did a presentation on this and it's all brain dumped out of my hand. <laughs> But basically, they, they didn't uh, look at all the dangers of the project. And they made it sound, actually, they kind of made it sugar-coated to the stakeholders so that they would buy into the project and actually let them do the project. So, so they took away some of the bad so that the project could actually happen. And when that bad did come occur, they were actually able to use their team's creativity 
to actually make that the bad better and, and turn it into an opportunity rather than something that's detrimental and, and providing scope creep and making the project take longer and more expensive. But what they found was actually enabling their team to you know, utilize their creativity they were actually able to turn that project into to one, maybe not necessarily a, a success from the terms that were actually in place, but afterwards, the tertiary effects, there were social economical effects that, and political effects that were better and better and better over time. Wow, well that's actually a pretty powerful story. So you think about, and, and of course, um, hiding the hand when it becomes a material non-starter, you know, is a different thing than holding back those little things that might trigger a suspicion that gets in the way of a much grander project that needs to be done and should be done. And it sounds like that's exactly the case here. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can, you can apply that to your, your corporate mindset. You can apply that to your military mindset, you know, think about more in terms of yourself though, you know, you know, I do, you know, with people that I talk to and we do the coaching thing and all that stuff, we do SWOT assessment on ourselves. That's the project management thing, you know, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. How often do you do that for another organization, but, but not yourself or your family, you know, your personal professional goals? Yeah. And, you know, in your example, do we ever run up ahead of ourselves, dig a hole in the ground, plant the landmine, bury it, then run back 10 steps and walk right into it and say, oh, I knew it. I just blew up. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. Damn it. The worst luck ever. <laughs> I quit. I quit. Yeah. So, you know, I hope this session gave everybody some food for thought. I hope it points to some of those principles that are hardwired into us that cause us to do sometimes the things that we do. And all we have to do is put a little check in front of that box, right? All we have to do is put a little wall in front of that thought. Yeah. And sometimes just that act enough leads us exponentially into other places we would not have been able to see had we not built that temporary barrier. So... Hope everybody got something out of the session. I know, Jason, I sure did from your perspectives. Thank you for sharing all those stories. Yeah, thank you, man. I, I, I love these conversations, you know, that goes back to that, that whole eight millimeter philosophy that you get from a lot of those motivational speakers. You know, Tony Robbins is one guy that talks about all the time. You know, just a small shift in the direction that you want to go will get wider and wider and wider in distance. All you have to do is eight millimeters at a time you know, continuously focusing on the, on the goal, any movement is good movement, you know, <laughs> as long as you're making some type of effort to progress, you're going to, you're going to make it to your goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great session, man. See you next week. Thanks everybody for joining in.